when you're ready. Let's start this game. Welcome to Unstacked and Let's Unwind with number one New York Times bestselling author B.E. Schwab. Let's find out about her writing process and newest novel, The Fragile Threads of Power. Hey, this is Sarah from the Bay County Public Library. Hey, this is Stephen from the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library. And I'm Victoria. I go by V.E. Schwab, and I'm the author of 22 books now for children, teens, and adults, and I am so excited to be here. Can you introduce our listeners to your new series, starting with The Fragile Threads of Power? Of course, of course. It's set in the same world as my Shades of Magic trilogy, which is about essentially our world four ways. So instead of writing about four different worlds, I wanted to write about one world defined four ways by its relationship to magic. So we have Grey London, which is uh, our version of London, a magicless place. We have Red London, a place where magic is worshipped like a god. White London, a place where magic is bound into servitude. And Black London, a place where magic thrived so well that it devoured everything. Uh, Fragile Threads of Power picks up seven years after the end of Conjuring of Light with both old characters and new. So it's a perfect place to start if you haven't read the series yet. But also, of course, you're welcome to read Shades of Magic first, in which case you'll get all of the nuance of the characters that you're meeting, not for the first time. So uh, Fragile Threads of Power is coming back to the Shades of Magic world. Uh, this is a series that uh, the trilogy ended like uh, what, 2017 or so? Yeah, 2017, 2018. How do you go about finding new stories in places where that you've kind of completed in a way and, and come back to them? Yeah, I write my stories in reverse, meaning from the ending backwards. So whether it's a standalone novel like Addie LaRue or a series like Shades of Magic, I have the ending in my mind and then I essentially rewind the story to find the beginning. So I don't just tend to spur of the moment decide that I want to write more books in a series. I was actually halfway through Conjuring of Light, the third book in the Shades of Magic series, when I realized that there was a favor that was going to be, you know, traded for an object and that I wasn't going to have time to to call in the favor. And so I decided rather than trying to force this plot point uh, to the detriment of the greater story, that was the moment when I started wondering, could the favor be uh, a little thread that dangles something that we come back to? And so, yeah, that's really how it started. Threads of Power starts seven years after the end of Conjuring of Light, and the premise is centered around the calling in of this favor. It's tricky to think of new stories in old worlds in some ways it's like coming home like the act of writing threads of power was for me the act of coming home to a world and a set of characters that i had gotten to know over the course of almost a decade and i loved them and i it was familiar territory the flip side of that is that it's daunting to write a new story set in a familiar world because obviously you don't want to repeat yourself you don't want it to feel like a redux but you have to kind of set new goals for your story. And so I had to really treat it like a brand new installment instead of only a, a continuation. So kind of uh, touching on what you said there with the you don't start till you have an ending kind of thing. Obviously, when you're writing not just a single novel, but series, do you have to have the ending to the entire series to start before you before you go in? I do. I do. So I usually for a trilogy, I have the ending of book one and the ending of book three. I usually don't have the ending of book two because traditionally that ends up kind of positioning itself in the course of writing it because it's usually the only real cliffhanger that I allow myself. While I never want book two in a trilogy to feel like a bridge in any way that's just getting us from one to three, I do feel like I get a slight more leave to play with where the ending is. It's the only ending that really tends to become malleable or shift around is the ending to the second book. But yeah, I need to know the ending to the entire thing because to me, very personally, the ending is the point. The ending is the culmination of every character, theme, emotional arc, physical arc, and motif. It's the whole premise really it's the hypothesis i'm trying to prove it's how i build my characters i rewind them from their finished form to the place we meet them i need to understand really the kind of 
the landing point, the punctuation mark at the end of this sentence in order to really grasp how I want to tell the story to get there. It's certainly, I am the exact opposite of the writers who like to just find their way through the dark and see where it takes them. I do a lot of that kind of brainstorming, but I do it in the literal brainstorming phase. I do it in the planning phase before I actually put pen to paper on the draft. I will let myself have blue sky ideas and I will let myself game out and choose my own adventure with lots of plot points. But once I figure out the story that I'm telling and the ending that I want, it's really about landing it as well as possible. And I so enjoyed the fragile threads of power. It did, it did wrap up where you could do that as a standalone and then, but you're like ready for the next one. <laughs> so I'm so I'm already ready for book two. And one of the characters that you started off with was Tess who I adored more so in, in Fragile Threads of Power than in the trilogy, you're playing with that element of creativity within magic and that aspect of making. And while I'm a librarian, I'm also an artist. So that really jumped out at me and you're a writer. So you're also a creator. Can you share a little bit about that inclusion? Of course, I think in, in, you know, writing is such a cathartic act and we process creativity in so many different ways. And, and it's so interesting because in so many ways, the Shades of Magic story was about power and about uh, being chosen with it and the expectations of it. And that felt more authorial. That felt like, you know, being labeled a creator, being labeled a powerful figure in this world kind of felt more like authors and their God complex. Whereas what Tess does this ability to literally change the threads of magic, to change the nature of the world around her is a deeply artistic act to the point where there's a, a moment early on in the story where she essentially can't quite explain it. She can try and explain it through metaphor, which is the way that I tend to explain everything in my life. But there's something there that exists almost in the realm of inspiration, where as a writer, sometimes I'll always say that there's a a space between the idea and the actuality that I can't quite break down in a mathematical way. I can't explain how an idea becomes a story. There's just some kind of alchemy. And I feel like Tess is playing in the alchemy of the world. And I, yeah, I love that for her. That's very much a creative and organic ability, especially because it's not something that was taught to her. She's self-taught, she's self-educated, and she has this deep curiosity for how things work. You know, when she she has a basically a pet owl that is a dead bird that she has spelled into movement. I think of it like her reaction to a Furby, like she's created this pet that just goes through these animatronic motions for her. But it happened because in her father's workshop when she was young, she saw a bird that was capable of imitating life and she wanted to understand what made it work so she could recreate it. So, yeah, I think she is an inventor. I think this is a series that really deals with invention. The, the new queen of Red London is also an inventor. The queen of White London, who is 14 years old, has a deeply organic relationship to magic as well. It's very much about things for which we don't have language. I enjoyed that element so much. And another aspect of it that I loved was the three-dimensionality of your your words, your very visual descriptions. I could picture everything. I could see magic just swirling around. How did you come up with the element of magic being seen as threads? Because I know that was in the trilogy as well, but you really bring it out in this um, this novel. Yeah, I, so I'm a very cinematic writer, meaning that like the way that I work in a very technical sense is that I have a movie that plays in my head and my goal as a writer is to transcribe that movie in such a way that the exact same film plays in your head. So it's beyond the technical details of a scene. It's how the camera, you know, metaphorical camera moves through the scene. It's what the color palette, what the score would feel like. Like I'm trying to create a film because to me that like that mass hallucination that we experience while reading, I want you to have the same hallucination that I'm having. So I do think about it a lot. And it's interesting in that the more I sat with Shades of Magic over the interim years, the more I kind of started revising my mental grasp of magic in that world. Because that's the other thing, right, is that we write novels and they become static. Uh, they become time capsules to the creators we were when we were writing them. But then we as people continue to grow. So each time I come back to a book, whether it's in Shades of Magic or now in Threads of Power, I've grown. I wrote A Darker Shade of Magic when I was 25, and I wrote The Fragile Threads of Power when I was 35. And so my 
vision of the world is kind of codifying, but also slightly malleable. I want to pick the defining attributes. And so the other thing is that we have to remember as readers that we are following a particular character's vision. Even though I'm writing in third person and not in first person, so I'm using like she, her, and not I, my, for those who don't know the difference between like first and third, I'm locked into a character at all times. So when I write a scene, I write it only from that character's kind of like over their shoulder in their head. And we all experience the world in different ways. So Kel Maresh, who's one of the original protagonists of Shades of Magic, is going to move through the world and experience it and notice things vastly differently from a character like Tess, who has this vision, this ability to literally see the cacophony of magic around her at all times. So I think about it in that sense of like, how do we perceive, how does an individual character, not me as the God figure and not you as the reader, but how do I lock you into an individual character's lens while I'm writing? To kind of hit on the point that you had there, where obviously there's a difference between 25-year-old you and 35-year-old you. How do you go about growing that as a writer during those times? Do you strive to do certain things to improve the craft? Is it just the mentality of just being older or... (laughs) I think you just try to grow. And I think we talk about growth as if it's this linear thing, as if you go from worse to better. But the fact is, like, we grow like roots in all directions. And my goal with each book is not to be better than the last book. My goal is to, because it's not an upward trajectory, my goal is to grow in a new direction. So I tend to set myself very personal challenges that a reader probably would never clue into, but I'm setting myself a goal because I need a way to judge whether a story is successful outside of the traditional metrics of publishing of how many copies did it sell? How many fans does it have? Like that is an aspect that I don't have a huge amount of control over, but what I do have control over is the story that I'm telling and how can I tell it to the best of my ability? I tend to set a structural challenge. So uh, Vicious or The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, they have massive structural challenges because they're about braiding timelines and braiding perspectives. And so that's a challenge I've set myself with Shades of Magic. I think in A Darker Shade of Magic, there were four perspectives. In Gathering of Shadows, there were eight. By Conjuring of Light, there were 12. I think there are 12 or so, 12 to 16 again in Threads of Power. That's its own challenge. How do you balance? Also, Threads of Power, because it deals with a seven-year time jump, I have a lot of flashbacks that are happening to fill in the time between. And so I have to ask myself not, is this a good book? I have to ask myself, is this the story that's achieving what I want to achieve and why I'm telling it? And I think that's the way you hope to grow. Obviously, look, from a technical standpoint, you hope to grow by reading. That's the fact of the matter. Like, I know this is these are libraries we're talking about here. Like, the fact is, I did not go to school for this. I was supposed to be an astrophysicist. I veered off that path and my father will never forgive me. Um, He's come around to it now, but it's taken some time. But I didn't go to school for this. The best education I have ever had was that about eight years ago, 10 years ago, I set myself a goal of reading 100 books a year. I specifically don't read all fantasy. I make it a goal that for every novel I think I will enjoy, I pick something completely opposite. So I look at 100 books a year and I probably read 10 fantasy, 10 historical, 25 nonfiction. I read poetry. I read children's books. I read I read as voraciously and as widely as possible to create a kind of cross-pollination. And I think that the more reading you do, you know, some writers, some aspiring writers have this fear of like, oh, but what if it affects my voice? No, this is how you find your voice, is in your differentiation. You find what works and what doesn't, what speaks to you and what doesn't. You develop your own meter and your own cadence and your own skill set by kind of feeding this story monster that lives inside you and eats everything you give it. And it eats comics and it eats movies and it eats music. It just, the best way you grow is by continuing to be a sponge for every form of story that you can get your hands on. So let's ring the sponge a little bit. Um, How much do you think people can learn about you as a person from reading your writing? I think they can learn a huge amount. I think they can learn a ton. I mean, I like you can look at my the breadth of my career so far. I'm just about year 15 in my career. I've been doing this since I was 21, 22. 
I came out when I was 27, you can literally see this uh, exploration of myself and this kind of trying to process something I didn't have language for in my first six or seven novels. I had not come out by the time I wrote A Darker Shade of Magic, but I had by the time I wrote Gathering of Shadows. And you can see this. You can see my exploration of otherness, of feeling out of place in my world, of feeling like an outsider. You can see it go from subtextual and subliminal to textual as I'm processing it. You can see my interest. You can see the change in our societies being brought through my relationships to my books between Vicious and Vengeful. Vicious is a highly masculine book about a toxic friendship between two men. By the time I write Vengeful, I write Vengeful in 2017, 2018, where I just kind of want to burn the world down as a woman a little bit. And so you can see me corresponding with the world around me and with my viewpoints, uh, with Addie LaRue written at a time of immense loneliness and a need for hope, with my next novel, which is about hunger and anger and moving through the world as a queer woman. Like, I think you can see a huge amount of a writer's identity. It's not to say that like the characters correspond to the writer's identity, but you can see writers processing things. You can see us coping. I wrote a, a YA series called The Monsters of Verity, which the first book's called This Savage Song and the second book's called Our Dark Duet. I wrote it, uh, I got the idea for it in like 2014. It's about gun violence in America. Like it's literally a fantasy series about a world where violence begins to breed actual monsters. Because I got to the point as an author, as a fantasy author, where we just like try and understand our world and how we would change it through the lens of what if. I remember just being really exasperated that nothing ever changed. I would wake up each day and I would see a new school shitting. I would see a new act of violence and I would just think, how is there no aftermath? How is there no karmic balance happening with any of this. It just felt like this repetitive cycle without any change. And that inspired an entire series about what if there was a karmic aftermath? What if every act of violence had an equal and opposite reaction in the creation of something that would continue to perpetuate violence? Is there anything that you think gets lost in the translation about yourself in the writing? No, I mean, I think if I've done it well, it's really not about readers reading my books for me. They can grasp parts of my identity, but it's not my job to, I'm not writing nonfiction, I'm not writing memoir. And so I don't think there's anything lost because I'm not trying to make declarative statements about myself. I think that it's an additive. I think it's a nuance. I think that I try and write with a level of truth, but I do think like, you know, I don't think much is lost. I think I do a decent job of making it quite clear that I'm writing fiction. But I also, you know, I definitely have recurring themes. And I think my readers track those recurring themes. I have a preoccupation with death, but not with death as a final frontier, but with death as a porous boundary, as a two-way street, as a thing that we can come back from or that we are changed by more of like the tarot card interpretation of death as a fundamental moment of transformation rather than endpoint. I have recurring beats, but I don't think anyone's like read my books and come up with like a completely erroneous fictional version of myself that lives in their head. If they have, I don't know about it. And you do create a space for diverse characters in your novels. I was drawn to how many of your female characters have characteristics often reserved for men in fiction, which I so loved, especially Lila Bard, yeah. who she's in charge. She doesn't back away from a sword fight. She is not a damsel in distress. She's a hero of her own story. And your characters, for more importantly, are very real. They're very grounded. Can you chat about your character development? Yeah, I mean, I think whether I'm writing, you know, a character that's masculine or feminine or non-binary, like I'm trying to write them as people first. And oftentimes I am trying to do something reactive. With Lila Bard, it was an experiment when I wrote her because I essentially wrote her as a male anti-hero. I gave her every attribute that I was seeing like touted in fantasy at that time for the guys. And then I just changed her pronouns and the level of hatred that she gets, like the level of anima, I mean, most people love her, but the people that hate her, they tend to be women. And they tend to believe that she should have been punished in some way over the course of the series for acting the way that she does. And I think that says so much about our society. 
um, than it does about Lila. Because I wrote her, like I say, I took basically a bullet point list of everything that we just seem to love in these in these male anti-heroes. They're ambitious and they're self-serving and they're a bit violent and they're adventurous and they go in first, you know, shoot first and think later. And I made her these things. And I was like, great, she gets to have these things. And the, the pushback is incredible to me. I like feed on it because it to me is just, it's getting exactly what I want, which is a conversation about how we feel certain characters have permission to be and certain ones don't. And I do have characters which are highly feminine. At the time when I was writing Lila, though, you know, she's wish fulfillment in a certain way. She has a relationship to fear that I deeply wanted to have, which is that she essentially knifes it in the side and carries on. It's not that she doesn't feel fear. It's just that it doesn't impede her in any way. And I think a lot of women could do with just a tiny bit more bombacity, a little bit more recklessness, a little bit more. um, She's unapologetic. And I think, you know, coming out of YA as well, which was what I started in, seeing that so often when we had female protagonists, when we had especially teenage girl protagonists, if they did have power, they were expected to be selfless. They were expected to be self-sacrificing. They were expected to give up everything for the greater good. When I was 16, I would have burned the world down to be happy. Like this is, I just didn't buy it. And I also was like, why is the societal expectation that when boys have power, they go and they ride dragons and rule the world. And when girls have power, they need to they need to be sacrificing it. And so I've tried really hard in my fiction to specifically challenge myself to write girls as deeply ambitious and uh, as unapologetic and to write the boys as deeply empathetic, not because it needs to exist in these extremes, but almost to kind of overcorrect for the fact that so often boys in narratives are meant to not have feelings or meant to not, you know, wear their hearts on their sleeve. And so I tend to give my boys deeply neurotic uh, heart on sleeve energy. Kel is an extremely earnest character and Lila's deeply sarcastic. Uh, August Flynn and Kate Harker in the in the Monsters of Verity play the same game. Henry Strauss in Addie LaRue is the most sensitive character I've ever written. You know, I, I think about this a lot and I think about it a lot with relation to Fragile Threads of Power because two of the new protagonists are teenage girls. Uh, and it's a deeply adult story, but like it's just about the expectations that we put on these young girls, especially when they have power. And Tess and Kosika, the two girls in question, are among the most powerful new figures in this world that has ever been seen. And they're surrounded by people who want to use that power instead of enable them to use it for themselves. I like that Tess could also kind of see that other people wanted to maybe use her power. So she strays away from that. Exactly. And it doesn't fall along gender lines. I mean, the most dangerous person in Tess's life is her big sister, who is essentially a a trader, somebody who goes out and collects articles of magic and sells them on the black market. And she is essentially an article of magic. And so I do try to add nuance and complexity to it. But when I'm first building my characters, I really start asking like, what do they want and what are they willing to do to get it? And specifically with the girls, I try to make sure that I don't tone it down. I love all your characters. So I'm looking forward to seeing how they grow. Thank you. So kind of building on that villainy, we, we get the whys of why they're doing the things. You know, what, what do you love most about a good villain narrative? Villains are my favorite. You can see me beaming because <laughs> truly like, I I mean, I wrote an entire series about villains, uh, Vicious and Vengeful and the upcoming Victorious, because I was just so deeply interested in like the idea that we that power makes us worse. That is my great thesis in this entire world. That is the thing I am exploring in every single book that I write. Power is always going to make us worse. And it came from this idea that I just talking about things I don't buy into this idea that you have a normal person with all of their petty follies and you give them superpowers and suddenly they don a cape and go fight crime. I just don't believe it. If you gave an ordinary person power, I think that they would go out there and they would get revenge 
on the people that had slighted them and they would have helped themselves. And it's not that I have a dark view of humanity. I think that that's more interesting. I think that using power as a way to explore our failings and our flaws is so much more interesting than using power as a way to make us stronger. So in Shades of Magic and Threads of Power, like being given ability, being given magical power or taking magical power tends to make every character a lot worse. Like just, in fact, one of the great things that Kel has to face in this book is that he has had his power taken away. He's considered one of the strongest people in this entire world and he breaks his magic and now he can't use it. And he has relied on it his entire life and he has to begin to define himself without this, you know, this this handicap that he's had, without this, this assist. So I really think about this in relation to every character I'm writing, which is that how would they use power to their advantage? And and almost every time it comes out in small, petty grievances. And it's the reason in the villain series in Vicious and Vengeful, nobody's gunning for world domination. Because I just, again, I don't think it's relatable. What I do think is deeply relatable is the fact that we've all been scorned. We've all been hurt by somebody. We've all wanted to prove somebody wrong. And when you have power, I think that's where your mind goes to. When you have a shiny new toy, you're like, how can I use this to prove those people who didn't believe in me wrong? Maybe it's my villain origin story, which is that I had um, I had a rough start in publishing. And by the time I was 25, I was about to quit because I had a bad relationship with my first publisher and essentially ended with them telling me it wasn't their fault that they were canceling my books. I just wasn't trying hard enough. And I almost quit. And instead I wrote Vicious. And I wrote Vicious as kind of a giant like F you to the system. I was like, well, if I'm out, I'm going to write exactly what I want to write. And like, I think we should never underestimate the power of spite because there have been really hard times in publishing that spite has carried me through on like, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to show you. You know, I was told for almost a decade that my books would never be commercially successful because they were too weird and too quiet and they weren't romantic. And so I was told like, oh, your books are good and we support them and we love your work, but like, don't ever expect to be commercially successful because you don't write books the way they need to be written to be commercially successful. And like my reaction to that was, well, I guess it's on me to prove you wrong. Um, and so it's incredibly validating, but I would be lying through my teeth if I told you that spite didn't fuel everything that I do some days. I can tell you that I, this is a conversation I have with my children on a, on, <laughs> on a fairly regular basis. You underestimate the ability and desire of things I will do just to spite people. Exactly. <laughs> and that's the thing. We all have our villain origin story in this way. Like the fact is that villains, you ask me why I love them, why I love to write them, is because when we read a book, we almost never relate to the hero. Because we don't look, we don't read the hero and be like, wow, they're strong, they're badass, they're great. I feel like them. We relate to people's weaknesses. We very rarely see our strengths reflected in other people. But what we do see is like, oh man, that character's going through a hard time and I know exactly how that feels. And villains possess such a wonderful power over us because they get to act in ways we can't. They get to act as articles of catharsis. They get to burn the world down when we wish we could. I mean, in Vengeful, Marcella is a woman who literally incinerates a man because he doesn't let her finish her sentence. And she is so tired of nobody letting her finish her sentence. Almost every woman can relate to this. Like every woman has just been told to like smile, look nice and shut up and wish they could incinerate somebody for it. So I think villains are among the most enjoyable characters when they're written well, because we latch onto something in them and we let them become the avatars that we don't get to be. I've always, it's always the villains that seem to be doing things actively, pushing things, whereas heroes tend to be that reactionary kind of basis where it's like, exactly. let's sit back. So. Because heroes are in some way beholden to their society and villains have found a way to act outside of it or to care less about the ramifications than about getting what they want. I think it was a uh, Chuck Klosterman has a book. What is it? Uh, I wear the black hat. Yep. And, and there's a line right at the beginning that I love that's uh, villains are the ones who know the most but care the least. Oh, that's it. Wait, I'm writing that down. Hold on. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously you can tell I could give an entire TED talk on villains. It's pretty much like my happiest place to be. I'm right there with you. <laughs> Favorite villain? Dorian Gray. want to jump back a little bit in that answer, though. You talked yes. about how you had almost given up writing completely because of a bad relationship. We have talked to so many people this year alone where, where they've had that moment where they were like, this is it, I'm done, I'm out. And then suddenly they, they, they don't give up. I think Martha Wells is a perfect example of this, where it's like, she was getting ready to do it. And the next thing you know, she's getting number one bestseller. You're number one bestseller now. So it's that career imposter syndrome. So what is it like overcoming that scariness of failure and success? I mean, I want to be brutally honest and say it's literally the only thing that separates us. You know what I mean? It's not that like the published writers are in, are better. It's the fact that like most of the published writers or the writers who are continually published are relentless. It's not being stopped by rejection. It's like there's something in us that's either broken or formed that we just like have kind of a not an anarchy, like an antagonistic relationship to other people's doubt. But I also think there's a really careful balance there where it's also an absence of ego like writing it's being an author is such a weird dichotomy because you have to believe in yourself so much before anyone else does but you also have to be flexible to getting better so you often end up with these two extremes where you have people who are like the system is completely broken screw the system and then they don't publish ever again and then you have people who are like i don't believe in myself enough to push the system and they don't get published ever again you have to somehow balance these two selves, the version of you that is constantly seeking to improve and the version of you that thinks you are good enough to be there. And somehow you have to hold them both inside you at the same time. And it's not easy. I go through this process with, I'm writing a book right now. I go through this every time I'm writing a first draft where apparently I say the exact same things to every person in my life. And they can, they can mark their clocks based on how frequently I say, this book is dumb, it's boring, it's not gonna work, I should just give up, like all of these things. And they'll just be like, oh yeah, what, what page are you on? Page 36, great, right there. They'll just check a box on their schedule. So part of it is like knowing when to trust yourself and when not to listen to that voice in your head. And like, what a weird insanity inducing space you have to put yourself in that you are trying to make something up but also acknowledge that it has to get better, that like you will need at some point to improve your craft. And so to believe you deserve to be there, but also believe that you are the worst you will ever be is such a hard thing to juggle. And it is deeply tempting to quit. And I am very, I'm always loath to tell people not to quit because the fact is everyone can tell you not to quit. But unless your desire to do this outweighs your fear of failing at it, I don't think you survive this industry. I think you have to want it more than you're scared of it every time. Now, it doesn't have to be a chasm between want and fear. There are days when my want to do this thing is one inch ahead of my fear. There are days when you think I'm going to quit. And I usually have to tell myself, great, for the next 72 hours, you don't get to write then. And I tend to make it about 24 hours. And I start realizing that like, but writing is the thing I love to do. And I think that sometimes it's important to differentiate between writing and publishing because writing is a really precious act that we have to make our peace with that is just us and the page and publishing is an industry. Most of the time when you get to a point where someone wants to quit that has already been through, there's like quitting before you start. And then there's being within the machine and wanting to quit because you feel like you're not surviving it. And it's hard because I've been in both places. <laughs> um, you just have to remind yourself why you do the thing. You have, to, you have to find your own way through and you have to make it on your terms. The best thing that ever happened to me was writing Vicious. One, because like I say, I was gonna quit. I decide I'll write one more book. I'll just say, screw what everybody else wants and I'll just write what I want. And it's not that this book came out and was a phenomenal success. This book came out and was and was fine. It was fine very steadily for the next 10 years, which is lovely, but it wasn't a massive bestseller. It wasn't life changing overnight. But what it taught me was that the only person I should be writing for is myself. I wrote that book for an audience of one. 
I stopped thinking, what does the industry want? What does the bookstore want? What do the shelves want? What will sell? I, I put all of it away. And I just thought I have to write as if there is exactly one reader and I have to tell the best story I can to that one reader, which is me. And I never looked back and my books, they didn't get more mainstream in their content. They got weirder and darker and quieter and all the things people told me wouldn't sell, but in their specificity, they became universal. And I am so grateful for that lesson because it taught me, look, my books don't succeed equally. I've written 22 of them. They don't all sell the same number of copies. It's not a straight line up, but I learned what I could live with is the knowledge that I am telling a story that excites me deeply every time. That was a very wayward answer. And you can tell that it's just a deeply difficult question to ask because I hate to be the person that says, if you don't want it badly enough, you won't succeed. But in some ways it is true. Even if you want it badly enough, you might not succeed. That's the grim truth of it. But at least the great gift that you can give yourself is committing everything you have to the act of telling a good story. There's a universal truth to it. And like you hear the success stories of some of these, the, the, like the Hollywood types, the two that popped in my mind are like Chris Pratt living in his car or the, yep. or the rock going out and being like, I've got seven bucks in my pocket. What am exactly. I going to do? It's, it's that like antagonistic, spite-filled conviction. And like, but again, I think the tricky part is not believing that you know better than everyone else because that develops a different kind of antagonistic relationship with the storytelling medium and can make people very uh, resistant to improvement. The trick is knowing that like, you're willing to do the work. The thing about Lizzo, the thing about The Rock is like they showed up at some point and they said, I'm gonna do whatever it takes to prove to you that I deserve to be here. That is very different from I am already great and I deserve to be here and you better catch up. It was. I am not going to stop until you force me out the building. And I'll fast track to the storytelling <laughs> aspect. <laughs> so you're in Tari, they can make doors from one world to another between the Londons. And the door returns in the fragile shades of magic, but really kind of plays at that concept of portals that I remember in fantasy growing up even a little bit more. And uh, books can often be that door into other worlds. And you have a key tattoo on your forearm that is your author icon. Can you share a little bit about doors and storytelling and, you know, keys to other worlds? I so the door, the key on my forearm is so that all the doors in life will open for me. Um, That is the reason for that tattoo. But I think about, so doors factor in to almost every single one of my books. Doors and death, these are my two thresholds here. And I think it's it's reminiscent of a particular kind of fantasy, which is to say that like to be the most reductive version of an author for a moment, I believe there tend to be Tolkien's and Lewis's. And the thing about Tolkien's work is that you will only ever access Middle Earth through the pages of that book. But the thing about Lewis's work is that you can get to Narnia through a wardrobe. There is a point of departure that makes you as a child then put down those books and go looking through the cupboards in your house for the way out. That is a very particular kind of fantasy and a particular kind of whimsy that has always interested me. I don't wanna believe that magic is real only in the pages of a book. I wanna believe that magic exists like a veil on top of our world, like it exists behind a door that I simply haven't found yet. This sheer proximity of the fantastical of the supernatural is what excites me most as a reader, as a human, and so as a writer. And so one of the reasons that doors factor so heavily into my books is because doors exist in our world. Because the idea is of creating a threshold and making you wonder what's on the other side. And this goes back to when I was 19, I was working on my very first novel that didn't get published. And I got the idea for it because I was walking through a neighborhood. And you know, when you walk past a wooden fence and there are slats, vertical slats, and if there's a little gap between the slats, then as you walk by, it almost makes like a stop motion. You kind of like see a movie beyond. So I'm walking down beside a fence with these vertical slats. And on the other side, I see a door. And the door is standing upright in the middle of a yard as if the entire house has been torn down around that door, but the door has remained. And I thought to myself, what if I open that door and there's something beside the yard on the other side? And I didn't want to go into the 
into the yard and I didn't want to open the door because I simultaneously wanted to hold on to the what if of it and I didn't want to be disproven. And as long as I didn't touch the actual door, I could harbor at least the 1% of doubt in my reality, the 1% of belief that maybe just maybe there would be something else on the other side. So my goal as an author is to make you doubt your reality, not entirely, but to almost like create a crack in your perception of the world so that you begin to wonder what if. And I think the door is the single icon of that wondering, of that what if. It's the thing that makes children and adults both look around and say, what if there's more? And I think that's just kind of my biggest hope as a creator. And I'll never forget back in like 2015, I get this email late at night from a guy. I mean, I guess like, based on the language that he used, like maybe 40s. And he says, it's four in the morning, right? He goes, I've just finished Vicious, which is a novel about supervillains that are, it's like their power generated from near-death experiences. And essentially, like, I tried to use as much scientific founding as possible for, like, adrenal reactions under stress. I simply made it a permanent transformation. Anyway, I get this email four in the morning from a full adult guy just being like, I've just finished it. I just need to know. I just need to be sure here. This is not a documented phenomenon, correct? And what I love is at 4 a.m., this guy is awake and he is trying to just just wrap his head around the back. He is 99% sure it's not real, but the 1% is keeping him awake. And I thought that is all I want to do. I want 1% of your brain to start being like, what if there is a wall with a locked door in it like at Gallant and there's something else on the other side after dusk. What if there's a crack in the world that you haven't found? Oh, I love it. <laughs> Schrodinger's door. Exactly, exactly. As long as you don't touch it, it's it goes somewhere else. And to kind of play on that element, your fantasy is grounded in reality. There's the element of real London and gray London. And you keep the existing ruling monarchies in real London set um, 1820s, 1819s. Yeah, exactly. So there's George III, George IV, they're, they're introduced in the trilogy. And history is even woven throughout like the invisible life of Addie LaRue. You weave history in it. You have a degree in medieval art history. I love how history of people can explain the whys of an era. What do you enjoy most about researching history? Oh, I mean, I hate it. I don't know why I keep doing it to myself because I just want to make shit up. I just want to make stuff up. Sorry. And uh, <laughs> like I it's I get myself every time I'm working on a new novel now that's set over 500 years and I'm like, come on. Like, I just am like, why? Why do I do this? But I think again, uh, I think Holly Black once told me that the way you get away with magic is to make the reality unimpeachable. Like the better your reality, the easier it is for people to buy into the departures. And I think this is because when you think about fantasy, what it is is every step away from reality is a step we're asking readers to take. Every step they take, we're going to lose somebody. So I try to keep my reality as immaculate as possible. I of course make mistakes because I'm not a historian, because I'm doing my best. And because at the end of the day, I wanna tell the best story. So I make tiny little errors every now and then, but on the whole, I think it adds veracity to the magic. Like I want to write about real places, if not real people. Uh, in Addie LaRue, the goal was to use half real people and half fictional one, half real places and half fictional ones. And to do it in such a way that they're sitting side by side so that you can't tell which is which. Um, I think Taylor Jenkins Reid once said, uh, I did an interview with her last year and she was basically like, it's not about writing real historical people as your protagonist. It's about writing fake people that stand next to the real people at a party. And like, that's the goal is everything I'm doing is just trying to shore up reality so that when I do ask you to make departures from reality, you're more willing as a reader to do it because you've already bought into the reality. And so it seems one step closer. I listened to, I don't know if you, heard on uh, Dana Schwartz has that noble, noble blood, yeah, noble blood 
So I, I, I listened to the one on George the fourth and I was like, oh, I can see the gluttony and yep. I can see the parallels in your novel to his character. <laughs> What's funny is British readers are angry because they don't think that I'm mean enough to George the oh, third or funny. George the fourth. And I was like, look, George the third was crazy, but like, you know, it worked for the story. He also believed in magic and that's part of why he's a little bit, a little bit mad, but they think I, I'm too nice to George the fourth in that they think I make him too competent. And I'm just like, it's early, George the Fourth. It's early. That's <laughs> like... funny. You mentioned that when you're writing, you you kind of see it as a movie that you're trying to translate in, into prose. That being said, you've had some stuff that get translated from prose to movies. You've had work with Netflix on First yeah. Kill. Uh, I understand there that uh, was it Gerard Butler might be uh, producing <laughs> Shades of Magic or yeah. and being directed by uh, John Wick? Directed? Oh, well, no. So he was one of the original writers. Uh, okay. But don't worry. We've got a really good team coming okay. together for Shades of Magic. So, so what is the experience like doing the, the Netflix or the, the production end? Um, you know, it's challenging because as an author, you are God. It is, it is you like at the end of the day, like, yes, I have an editorial team. I have a publisher. I have an amazing team who's working to make my books as successful as they can be. But when it comes to the words on paper, my editor will of course make suggestions and ask me questions and help me make the best story possible. But at the end of the day, it's my name on the book. And so it's my words on the page. When you work in TV and film adaptation, you go from being a, you know, a single God to a pantheon of many, and you're not even the most powerful God in that pantheon because you're not putting up $100 million. And so it becomes like ruling by committee and it can be frustrating because I think sometimes the best work we see in translation is so strong because there's like one vision. It's either one creator, one writer, director, well, whoever's creating a sense of cohesion that is really there built into the process of a novel and is not inherent to TV and film. So with that in mind, I've become quite strong-willed in uh, wanting to be pretty intimately involved in my adaptations. And so for Addie LaRue, we have an incredible writer-director team and I read every version of the script and I give notes and I um, am really in the room where it happens at all times. For Shades of Magic, I actually append the most recent version of A Darker Shade of Magic, the feature script myself. And I'm really excited. Obviously everything is paused right now due to the writer strike. But um, I'm like either the head writer or I am like essentially deeply in communication with the head writer for everything that I do, just because I've had that experience a couple times now and I've learned how important it is to me to uh, one, know my weaknesses, which is to say that my my bread and butter is novels and I need to understand when I'm not the strongest translation medium but i also want to make sure that the characters are being faithfully portrayed plot is less important like plot will change by the medium but characters should not change and so my job is really to understand how to keep the heart and soul of my characters alive because that's really what people want so because these kind of questions always make me curious yeah writer striking yeah. So you 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 are a you're a writer. But yeah. You also write movies. Do do you have to pause both of them? No, 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 no. So all basically all of my film and TV work gets paused. So I turned in the draft for the Shades of Magic film right before the strike happened. And now everything's silenced. Everything on Addie is paused. Everything on a couple other things that are in development are paused. My novel side keeps going. Trust me, my novel side keeps going full steam. I am booked for the next seven years. And I cannot afford to pause, but no, it is a specifically screenwriters guild. Authors, for better or worse, don't really have a union. <laughs> like we uh, are, are freelancers, we are individual performers. And so, no, this is really a strike that is happening in Hollywood because of a lot of outdated financing methods for writers and the fact that like we no longer run 26 episode seasons of things. We no longer have a writer's room that pays a living salary. You know, there's AI encroaching. There's a lot of things which are making it so that TV and film writers aren't getting properly compensated and so they can't survive. So no, thankfully I have enough book work on my table that, uh, but obviously like it's scary to have projects which are quite far down the line, all frozen. 
Uh, and so I'm really hoping that the industry comes to its senses as quickly as possible because like we were very close to getting to casting for Addy and I want that to happen and I want to get everything up and running on my other projects because they've been years in the making. I mean, Shades of Magic has been six years in the making now. Addy has been five. Like I want these things to happen. And from yeah. a consumer perspective, it's, you know, we <laughs> want it to happen. I mean, yes. <laughs> I, I, I'm looking at, there's certain shows that I, I base my year around, I got what we do in the shadows that starts Oh my God, week. coming back. It's coming <laughs> yeah. back this week. I didn't even know this until I went on Rotten Tomatoes and I was like, what? <laughs> this week? The, Thursday. I'm so excited. I mean, Wait, but, what are you looking forward to? What we do in the shadows is one I'm most looked forward to. I, I generally, I've got my third season of Witcher that I could join in on, but I'm like, you know, nobody's been talking about it. So I'm like, it must oh. stink. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm always looking for something irreverent. So, you know, anytime I can see a South Park episode or something of that nature, mm. I, I'm there. But, you know, he's always like, okay, I know I've got this this week. Once that's done, if something doesn't get worked out, I can see the vat going dry shortly. I know I get so nervous because like I, I don't get to watch a huge amount of TV, but I watch it very pointedly. I watch it with breakfast. I watch it with lunch. I watch it with dinner. I watch it when I'm not actively working and I'm about, I'm in the middle of signing 45,000 tip-in sheets for Threads of Power. And like my favorite thing to do is binge watch a television show while I'm signing tip-in sheets because it's such a guilt-free method for me. And I'm like, oh no, but I'm going to run out of TV shows. We have the Dark Winds. Season two is, I think, this month. Uh -huh. I've got, I'm a wrestling fan, so Stephen Amell has a Stars one about him running a backyard wrestling group called Heels. Ooh, nice. Um, we've got the, I guess, season two of Interview with a Vampire will be out at some point uh, here. The, I could do an entire podcast on my love of the new adaptation of Interview with a Vampire, which is to me one of the most overtly queer and beautifully executed shows that I have ever seen like i am I'm so enamored with that show and the fact that it's season two is coming it just gives me a lot of hope but otherwise i've been a lot of old stuff i'm doing fringe right now because you know evidently i didn't finish yeah. watching it when i was a was much younger <laughs> we're gonna be end up doing some deep dives into tv shows um i just started uh i'm a virgo which is a really quirky surrealist show on amazon that i'm loving but like, if the boys gets delayed, I'm going to be really pissed off. Like there are things I'm waiting for that I'm like, come on guys, don't, don't do this to me. I need my television. By the time I go on tour in the fall, I need to have shows I can watch on, because I'll be on airplanes every single day and my brain will be too tired to read. And so I'm like, come on guys, give me, give me, give me my fodder. And we always ask this, and this is a perfect time to ask, um, what are you currently reading slash watching? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I knew you were going to ask. And so I bring up my, <laughs> my, my Libby app. Um, I am currently reading the bomber. Well, I'm listening to the bomber mafia, which is Malcolm Gladwell, because I'm at a point in the first draft of this very cumbersome 500 year novel, wherein um, I have to be really careful about what I read for voice, not because the voice will start to bleed into mine, but just because it will make it that much harder to keep my own narrative voices clear in my head. So I tend to go through these periods where I shift to either wildly disparate things from what I write, like romantic comedy, the book that just came out that was like an SNL style book or the bomber mafia or things where I've just truly not worried about any kind of voice crossover. So on the fantasy side, I'm reading Jade City by Fauna Lee, which is gorgeous, but also different enough. If I wouldn't read it while I was writing threads because they're both fantasy, but what I'm writing now is different enough that I'm not worried about it. And then up next, I have All the Sinners Bleed, which is S.A. Cosby, because S.A. Cosby's last book, Razorblade Tears, was like one of my favorite books of last year. I want to read it. That's on my list. I always have a big to read pile. So I'm really Same. hoping to get to that one soon. Yeah, I have the arc stack, too, of things I'm supposed to be reading, but I'm really mm -hmm. ordering and I'll be like, I want to read a Stephen King book from 20 years ago instead. I just can't be I can't be controlled. Um, <laughs> but there's always something. So we promised a little bit of fun. One of the games we like to play here, you might know it as a different name, but because Sarah makes me stay PG, we call it Kiss, Mary Ditch. Great, great. <laughs> I've got a couple categories here. Inside each of those categories, there are going to be three things that you like, love, and want to get rid of. I'm yep. going to make you choose one of those categories, but I've hidden them so you don't know exactly what you're getting into. Okay. So your categories to choose from are King for a Day, Death Metal Jazz, Spooky, spooky, and in hot water. Ooh, spooky, spooky. We're going to be talking about Scottish haunts. 
Amazing. Um, so Mary King's Close, Dunrobin Castle, or Dunstaffnidge Castle, and I butchered that name horribly, I know. Wait, I don't think I know this ghost stories behind the second and the third one. So this feels like it's cheating. I know that I would ditch Mary King's Close. Mary King's Close is so horrifying for listeners who don't know. Mary King's Close is the site of basically a mass burial during the plague years in Edinburgh. And a lot of people were put down there and bricked up before they were dead. And it was uh, closed for 200 years and then it was unearthed and it is considered one of the most haunted places in the world. So I don't even care. I'll keep the other two as long as I can get as far <laughs> from possible uh, from Mary King's Close. Uh, to give you an idea, King for a Day, I would have made you choose uh, some Stephen King novels. Oh, I wish I could have done that one. Hey, you want to play? Let's play. Yeah, I want to play. I want to play. The Mist, Doctor Sleep, and The Dead Zone. Ooh, uh, Doctor Sleep is my favorite. Uh, I would say, so like the mist or kiss the mist, marry Dr. Sleep and get rid, of dead zone. Oh, get rid of dead zone. But I also tend to be like more of, I like Stephen King's thrillers more than his horrors because my imagination is too vivid. And so I tend to avoid the more horror end of it. And I really like, I really like his kind of in-world concept of the shine and the shining. And like, I like anytime there's that bleed through. So Dr. Sleep is a, is a favorite. Uh, death Metal Jazz would make you choose between Cowboy Bebop, Full Metal Alchemist, and Death Note. And In Hot Water. You can't ditch any of those. You can't ditch yeah. any of those. Those are three <laughs> seminal stories. I play for keeps with this game. I, I go also, Al, you know you ditch you ditch Death Note because it's inconsistent. Because the first two thirds of Death Note before Light is killed is like perfect, but after Light is killed, I don't really get down with Death Note. Whereas Cowboy Bebop is immaculate. And did you say Full Metal Alchemist or Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood? I went. I just went standard. I didn't. Oh, put the problem okay, great. It. That's easy then. Full Metal <laughs> Alchemist is like like Cowboy Bebop is love like. Love to the ends of the world and only ditch Death Note because that last third of the show just kills it for me. And you know, so I'm just like, let's play all the games. You know, <laughs> in Hot Water, we were talking teas, black teas, oolong, and green. Oh, I mean, as long as none of them are Earl Grey, they can all stay. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Earl Grey tastes like my grandmother's clothes steeped in warm water for like three days. It's just not my jam at all. <laughs> it's just you the know, bergamot. It's yeah. Bergamot. It's just the I'm that worst. way with. Scotch, I think Scotch tastes like band-aids, but I like whiskey. Oh. But like oh. if it was a Scotch, I know it's the weird oh. odory thing. But oh. I like Earl Grey. <laughs> oh my God, brutal! We can't be friends, or you can have all the Earl Grey, and I'll take all the there Scotch. There we go. I'll give you all the Scotch. Great. We'll See, trade. I've, I've got to ask this now because I have a story with my kids where I say that tastes like gasoline, and they have to ask me <gasps> why I know something tastes like gasoline. <laughs> Why do you know what your grandmother's clothes steep in hot water? I just, like? It's just like my grandmother was English and it just feels like musty. It feels like, you know, when you open a closet that you haven't opened in a while and everything just feels and smells kind of like damp, mm -hmm. like sad and damp. That's how I feel Earl Grey would taste. It's like, because you know, so much of taste is smell. Is. So that's what you should say to your kids, that it's less about taste and it's more about smell. Oh, mm -hmm. I full on admit that we used to siphon gas out of cars. <laughs> There's that too. <laughs> There's that answer. <laughs> and what is a typical writing day like for you? I have no idea. No, I, um, <laughs> it depends on whether I'm on tour or not. Usually I try and write in the morning because if I can get a start in the morning, I'm more likely to be able to write in the afternoon. But if I don't start until the afternoon, I just, there's so many excuses why never to start or to be like, well, I guess I'll do this tomorrow. So I find that I need to start my day with the hardest task, which for me is drafting because I really just have to get out of my own head to do it. I spend so much time trapped in perfectionism. So I write first thing and when first thing, I mean at like 10 after I've walked my dog and had breakfast. And then if I'm lucky, I come back and write more in the afternoon. But uh, I live in Scotland. I'm here in France right now, but I live in Scotland. And so the morning is the only time of day that like I'm not being bombarded by any work email. And so it's really a precious time. And I acknowledge that if I can at least put my eyes on the page in the morning, do something to prop the creative door open, then even if I can't come back to it in the afternoon, at least I've done some work. So we interviewed a colleague of yours right uh, in our previous episode. Yes. Uh, TJ Clune, to be exact. Oh, yeah. And we asked him what we one question we should ask you. 
Oh no. Was it about yeah. tea? It, it yes. was about tea. He asked us, <laughs> he asked us to ask you, what did you call him for his choice in teas? Oh my God, I don't remember. I have a terrible memory though for anything that's not the literal words I've put on a page. I have a near eidetic memory. He said for... it was two words and one of them might've been basic. Oh, a basic bitch. Yeah. I mean, the thing is like, I did an interview with TJ virtually during the pandemic for Under the Whispering Door and I brought out like my whole tea selection and it was, his choices were so basic. I brought, must've brought out like 45 different teas for him to choose from. It, it was, it was so basic, but I will say like, I'm also a purist, so I respect the mundane decisions, but I thought he was going to go for something really wild and like experimental. Uh, I have all these French teas that are in these little vials that are like, they go down into florals and sweets and all of these things. No, no, basic. That, that was what I was assuming you, you would call them. Yeah. But I can tell you he's still harboring this. Oh, I mean, I love this. <laughs> Let him harbor. Let him harbor. His, his book made me crave tea. So it's the least that, he, that I can do. And your books actually made me crave just that really strong black tea. That's what I wanted. Everyone wanted strong black tea. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Tess like specifically wants it to be like the way I make my black tea in the morning is like, you can't see through it. Like I don't, I don't put any milk in my tea, but it steeps until the point where you literally could not, if you put the spoon in it, you wouldn't be able to see the spoon in the water. Uh, and, and that's how it needs to be for me to start my day. I can switch to other things after that first cup, but that first cup needs to basically look like dark coffee. I love it. <laughs> the longer something steeps, the happier I am. And everybody exactly. in my family just thinks I'm just awful at drinking tea. And I'm like, no, you give me a 10 minute steep and I'm happy. The only thing I can't is, I don't know if you guys have Yorkshire blend, but like it is so oh, strong, too strong. That, like, the tannins in it, if it steeps too long, it like will give you an instant headache where you're just mm -hmm. like, how it goes to bitter. But I drink Tetley. I've tried so many fancy expensive teas, but honestly, Tetley is my happiest. I put two little Tetley bags in a pot. I make myself a full pot and I am set for the day. I'm usually a Tetley um, English breakfast or mm -hmm. a Twinings. I will do Twinings at work because they have the nice little individual bags. Yes, yeah, definitely. So we kind of use this next question because if I say, hey, what's on the horizon? You're going to give me a whole bunch of running around. So I'm going to yeah. use this question to get around that. that. Okay. What's the strangest thing in your search history? <laughs> okay, the strangest thing that I searched. Yeah, I have to narrow it down to like yesterday. The strangest thing that I searched yesterday was for a, a side project with a friend. And it was craziest shit people have done on Ambien. Ooh, so I, she was in, she's Scottish and she'd never really like understood the Ambien thing because they have much stricter rules in Scotland. And we wanted a character to be on Ambien and then do something crazy. And she's like, is this even believable? Like, do people do weird stuff on Ambien? And I was like, allow me to consult the Google. And we pulled up like literally someone like shaved half their cat. Someone put like seven staples in a lime. Like somebody like it was just all of these things that people didn't had no memory of. And I was it gave me a lot of joy to go down the list with her. But that probably of the last 24 hours is the weirdest thing in my search history. We are a library podcast. How have libraries impacted your life? I mean, hugely. Like, I use the Libby app religiously. I am, um, I like, I don't want to lie and say, like, oh, I was a kid that lived in libraries. I wasn't. Like, I, I wasn't that child. I was a, an athlete and I spent most of my time outside. But as an adult, libraries have been fundamental. They're especially important as someone who, like I say, I believe in creative cross-pollination. I believe that you should test the waters of things that you don't know that you'll like. And I think libraries are a perfect way to do this. They're a perfect way for you to experiment with stories without committing to going out and buying a whole novel. Like they're such a good way to play. They're low risk and they're just an incredible repository of stories. So obviously all the obvious ways of accessibility and acting within the community, but honestly, just for the challenge of reading broadly, challenging yourself to go into a library or go onto a library's page and pick five titles and make sure that three of them are complete unknowns to you or complete risks. Like, what do you have to lose? It's a library book. And this makes me want to ask this question because you're talking about challenging and, and doing things outside of norm. What's a genre that you haven't written that you want to dabble in? 
You know, it's interesting because I feel like a lot of my stories split a genre. So like I would say thriller, but most of my books have some thriller component to them. Or I would say mystery, but most of my books have some mystery. Um, I'd say the only genre I don't have interest in is pure realism. Just because, again, it doesn't excite me. That doesn't, you know, it doesn't tickle my fancy. I'd really like at some point one day to write nonfiction just because I think I... I write a lot of craft advice and I try really hard to make sure a large portion of my platform is speaking specifically to writers about the creative journey. And I know I have a lot of writers who follow me for that as much as for my fiction. So I'd like one day to write nonfiction, but I don't know exactly, you know, some fusion of memoir and craft because I think craft is best when it's personal. But I just have this obscene quantity of metaphors that live rent-free in my head that I use to try and explain how story works for me. I think that would be perfect. I always love hearing you talk about your your process, so I can see it in written form as well. Maybe <laughs> you narrating it as well oh, as God. audiobook. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, I love my audiobook narrators. They do such a better job than I ever could. <laughs> But a memoir, there. Memoir, I could because yeah. I wouldn't have to come up with voices. Yeah. Yeah. As we wrap up here, uh, we kind of end on a, a note of: Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners? Ooh, I mean, honestly, I feel like we've covered so much. It feels greedy to try and think of anything else to put forward into the world. Um, I would say that, specifically as regards my own work. I have tried very hard to never tell the same story twice. And what that means is that my books are not written for one reader. And by nature of that, it means that not every book will feel like it's perfectly in the bullseye for you. But if anyone listening has taken a chance on one of my books, I hope they'll try a second or a third or a fourth because each one is a little different and each one is meant to speak to a slightly different version of yourself. And I always get readers who come to me and they feel guilty if they loved one of my books more than another. And I'm like, but that's the point, isn't it? Like the point is about finding the bullseye. I look at my favorite authors. I look at writers like Neil Gaiman for whom I adore his work. I don't have to love every one of his books equally, but I know that every time I pick up one of his books, I'm going to experience something unique. And so I would say that for anyone who hasn't tried my work for the first time, I hope you'll give it a go. And uh, I hope you'll give me at least three goes. I hope you'll pick three wildly disparate things from my own shelves and see what speaks to you. He is, uh, speaking again, he's, he has been on my my short list for trying to interview since we started this thing, oh. so. He is the loveliest human. I was lucky enough to do an interview with him uh, during the pandemic, because he blurbed The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, and uh, it was like one of the highlights of my year. If you happen to meet him again, don't <laughs> hesitate tell to tell him to, to reach out I to us, despite him. the rejections that we have got. No worries. <laughs> Thank you very much for, for making some time with us today. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yes. Yeah, thank you. It's been such a treat. And so far, I've only read four of your titles. So I'm looking forward to adding more to my list. Oh, my goodness. Well, I hope you enjoy the rest. I will. Thank you so much, Victoria, for joining us on Unstacked. The Fragile Threads of Power will be available in the library collection for checkout. It can also be purchased to your favorite bookstore and online vendors. Check out her website, victoriaschwab.com. That's V-I-C-T-O-R-I-A-S-C-H-W-A-B.com. Stay safe and read, my friend. It's good for you. Bye. Bye.